0: A couple of months ago, uh, we rearranged the second service and I preached the sermon at the beginning and then we did everything else after because Pastor Chris Peterson and I needed to sneak out and quick go catch a plane so we could eventually end up in India. And uh, it was a little awkward and didn't seem quite right to you know, break tradition, but it seemed to work okay. This is one of those Sundays I wish it was the same way. Not that I'm dying to go get on a plane and fly across the globe, but it has been wonderful to sing about Christ and His greatness and the gospel, and we just heard a great song about Christ in our place, and, and, and it's so encouraging and wonderful. And I'm about ready to undo the whole thing with the sermon. So I so wish I could preach the sermon first, then we could talk about the gospel, and then we could all be happy. And so you're about ready to get um, whiplash, uh, maybe, but I still think the outcome can be good because we're going to be reminded yet again about why the gospel is so great to us. Because apart from the gospel, life is futility. But I need some help to pull this off, so let's ask God, and if you would intercede on my behalf as we pray, that would be wonderful. Father, we are indeed happy in Jesus. We are grateful that Jesus lived and died and rose again on our behalf, that he has ascended, that he is at your right hand now interceding for us, and that he is simply waiting, waiting to return to rescue us. And we're grateful that you've entrusted this gospel to us, that we are ambassadors and it is indeed with joyful hearts that we proclaim the gospel. We're grateful that we can trust in this great Savior. And now help us to see just how much we need Jesus to be our Savior as we open up our Bibles and as we begin this study in Ecclesiastes. In Jesus' name, amen. Five-time Emmy Award loser. Dennis Leary made this observation. Most people think life sucks and then you die. Not me, I beg to differ, says Dennis Leary. I think life sucks, then you get cancer, then your dog dies, your wife leaves you, the cancer goes into remission, you get a new dog, you get married, you owe $10 million in medical bills, but you work hard for 35 years and pay it back, and then one day you have a massive stroke. Your whole right side is paralyzed. You have to limp along the streets and speak out of the left side of your mouth and drool. But you go into rehabilitation and regain the power to walk and the power to talk. And then one day, you step off a curb and bang, you get hit by a bus. And then you die. Maybe. How do you respond to that? Do you say, well, that's pessimism? Or you say, that's fatalism? Maybe you say, that's realism. We could debate about the right label for that kind of philosophy, that kind of take. But one thing we can't debate about, I don't think, is the fact that Dennis Literary's evaluation, his take on life in this world as we know it, sounds a lot like the by and large message of Ecclesiastes. Not the entire message, but a big part of the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes repeats the line again and again, Completely meaningless, completely meaningless, everything is meaningless. Starts in chapter 1 verse 2, the book essentially ends that way in chapter 12, though not entirely, but essentially, and, and permeating the whole book. Completely meaningless, completely meaningless, everything is Meaningless. Education, philosophy, wealth. Meaningless, 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 meaningless. And you might say, but but you don't understand. I'm living the American dream. My life is filled with meaning. I have a degree. I have my own business. I have 2.5 kids. I drive a luxury car. Don't tell me my life is filled with meaningless and futility. My life has great meaning and it's wonderful. Sort of like my dad with that luxury car. A brand new one every two years. Successful businessman. Owned his house outright. Only to sign his retirement papers on his deathbed so his, so his wife and three kids could have a little bit more money? That kind of meaningful? If you have enough money, you can have an endowment with your name on it and we'll, be all, th- we'll all be thankful if we get your money even though we won't know who in the world you are, at least after a generation or so. The writer to Ecclesiastes means it when he says completely meaningless, completely meaningless, everything is meaningless. He so badly wants us to understand this, that there is no significance in your life apart from one very, very important thing. And if you understand the one very, very important thing, you go from there is no meaning in your life, no significance in your life, to everything has meaning in your life, and there is utter and absolute significance to your life. There's one ingredient. There's one key to this whole thing. But the writer to Ecclesiastes works very hard to keep that key from us. For a long time. So that when we do understand. We understand just how great life can be. And should be. If you understand this one vital and important reality. But oh does he take us down. Before he allows us to see it. Kind of the way the gospel works. With sin. And God's law. Well, this morning we're going to start a study in Ecclesiastes. We'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And if you're a note-taker, I'm going to offer you three features of Ecclesiastes that will help you to understand the book. More importantly, will help you to understand how you can go from meaninglessness in life to true, authentic meaning in life. In three simple words, here are those three features. Number one, perspective. Number two, appraisal. Number three, sampling. Three words that don't make any sense without some explanation, but let's keep it simple. Perspective, appraisal, and sampling. We're going to hear a perspective from a legitimate source. We're going to hear an appraisal of all of life apart from that one key ingredient, which we haven't talked about yet. And number three, the third feature, we'll have a sampling of what the whole book is really going to be about without that one key. And so we come to that first feature, to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, to understand movement from total meaninglessness to absolute joyous meaning is perspective and by perspective i mean the perspective of the author of ecclesiastes look at verse 1 with me if you would where we hear these words the words of the preacher the son of david king in jerusalem that's whose perspective we're going to hear and i'm suggesting to you that that is a significant perspective the perspective of ecclesiastes is not from some uneducated, lacking power, dimwit, who doesn't really know anything, but lots to, uh, likes to talk a lot and give his philosophy of life. What we're going to hear is a message from someone who is none other than the son of David. King in Jerusalem. That tells us he... To use a double negative, he's not a nobody, okay? He has means, he's educated, he has power in his means, he has wealth, he has great experience. And so when he does speak, he knows what he's saying. He knows what he's saying, and that helps us to know that it's coming from his perspective, not just the latest and greatest. You might want to say, uh, "This author is a Renaissance man." (laughs) Pre-Renaissance, okay? He knows what he's talking about, and the most straightforward way to take this is to take this to be none other than King Solomon. And some people want to debate whether it's King Solomon or not, uh, because you could be called Son of David like Jesus is called Son of David because he's in the line of David, and you wouldn't have to be Solomon. Uh, you could be a different king in Jerusalem. But I take it that the simplest way to take it is this is the Son of David in that from his line, it's Solomon, king in Jerusalem, and given the similarity between this and Proverbs and, and all of his wisdom writing, this, I would take this to be King Solomon. Now keep, keep thinking about that for a moment. If King Solomon is giving us Ecclesiastes and God is using him, there are some amazing things said about it, King Solomon's wisdom. So again, perspective that says vanity of vanity, everything is vanity, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, is coming from the wisest man to live. So he's not a half-rate uneducated philosopher, nihilist or something. Just just listen, if you would, to what the Bible says about this unmatched sage. You could jot down 1 Kings chapter 4 if you'd like, or 1 Kings chapter 10 if you'd like. I'll simply read so we can keep things moving. But here's what it says about Solomon. Verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. And breadth of mind, like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, Heman, Darda, sons of Mahol. Apparently all famous wise people, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Verse thirty two says of chapter four, first Kings, he also spoke three thousand Proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Chapter 10, verse 23. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Perspective. He's got clout. More than anybody. If Solomon writes this, it's no later than about 931 BC. He's called the preacher, could be translated the speaker. Some have even said the president, spokesman, philosopher, professor, and he's speaking to the gathering. As people came in droves to hear what Solomon would say. Why Solomon? He's speaking to, to the gathering. Ecclesiastes, the gathered group. And they come to hear him as would be normal for Solomon. And so we're to listen to the sage. To the man God has granted great wisdom. World famous for his wisdom. And so we have heard from him even already. And he says vanity of vanity, everything is vanity. One more thing about perspective. In my opinion, and I have some some friends in this, uh, I have good company uh, in this. In my opinion, what Solomon is doing in writing this is he is writing from the perspective, by and large... He's writing from the perspective of an unbeliever. And some people would care to differ, and and that's fine. Uh, But I think he's writing from the perspective of an unbeliever, but along the way he gives us some little glimpses, but really holding out to the very end to give us the key to understanding the dilemma of meaninglessness in life. Let me put it in other terms. He's writing from the perspective of what life looks like and where you will go in your perspective if you only have creation, if you only have what we call sometimes general revelation. Everything ends up leading to futility. Which is why we so desperately need a true Vision of the true living God. In other words, we call that special revelation to understand the world we live in and to comprehend. And so everything makes sense and we go from absolute meaninglessness to absolute meaning in life. That's my take on how we'll understand things. Derek Kidner in his helpful commentary says this. I think it's worth reading. At bottom we can find the axiom or the the truth of all the wise men of the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the preacher, Solomon, plans to bring us to that point last of all. When we are desperate for an answer. There are hints of it in passing, but his main approach is from the other end. The resolve to see how far a man will get with no such basis. He puts himself and us in the shoes of the humanist or secularist. Not the atheist, for atheism was hardly a going concern in his day, but the person who starts his thinking from man and the observable world and knows God only from a distance. He goes on to say, this man is a man groping his way by the light of nature and only nature. And so, this man without special revelation, without scripture, without the revelation of Christ ultimately is looking under every rock looking in dark places where sometimes people like us don't even want to go. And he's going to push it. He's going to push the antithesis. He's going to to push this thing sometimes very, very far to eventually show you and to show me that apart from the key, knowledge of the true God, true knowledge of the true God, your life is futile. And he wants you to be desperate in the search so that you're ready for the key. And it's going to make us uncomfortable. But that prepares us. It tills the soil, if you will, so that we say, yes! That's what we need. That's what we want. I should mention that there are definitely other takes on Ecclesiastes, only to mention a couple. Some would say it just ends with absolute meaninglessness. And the point of life is do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. Well, that's not the way the book ends. It definitely ends with a solution, which is the true knowledge of God. But that's more outside the Christian camp and people who are more against the Bible. But within our, within our camp and within the Christian camp, uh, many times Christians read Ecclesiastes as more wise principles for living. And that may be your approach. But what's interesting is, in Ecclesiastes, even wisdom is futile. So I'm not going to take the perspective that these are wise principles for living because he says everything is vanity. I think it would be vanity for us to see this as wise principles for living. Apart from the key to unlocking the whole thing, which is a true knowledge of God. And so that's the approach we're going to take. I hope it's okay with you, but I have the microphone. <laughs> so if you want to take the other view, I think there's property for sale up the street. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to this with some fear and trepidation, and we have the perspective of the wisest man to have ever lived, and he's helping us to see everything is vanity apart from a knowledge of God. Let's move on now to a a second feature to help us to understand the book, but also to help us to move from meaninglessness to meaning, and that's an appraisal. He gives an appraisal of everything. Look at verse 2. We've already heard it, but now we have the translation from the ESV. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And how many of you have ever heard that before? You ever heard anybody say vanity of vanities? Everything is vanity. Lots of people have heard that before. Lots of people who don't know anything about the Bible have heard that before because it's become a pretty common saying. And the translation vanity was popularized with the King James Version, King James Translation, which is a good translation. The only problem with translating it as vanity is. Since the 17th century, we've come to use that English word differently, right? When we hear vanity, we typically think of pride and self-love, right? You're so vain. You probably think the song is about you, right? Good thing I'm not trying out for the music pastor or whatever we say. <laughs> Vanity is self-love. You're just all into vainglory. It's all about you. And yes, that would be inappropriate, but that's not Solomon's emphasis. Which is what has caused some to say, well, a better way to, to communicate this to the world that we live in and the way we use English is the way I referenced it earlier. Completely Meaningless. Completely meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's a word describing futility. It's as close as you get to zero. It's just a breath. It's nothing. Pointlessness. Bankrupt. And one thing that's very interesting, if that's the idea, and I don't know anyone who wouldn't suggest that that is the idea is where that comes from. Where does that come from? Let's pretend like for a moment we're having a little home Bible study here and someone says, well, what, what led to this? If that's really true, what led to this? And, and, and you're going to say, well, sin caused that. And I'm going to say, good answer, good job. And we're not going to go there yet. I'd like to do it later on. I'd like to go back to Romans 8 sometime at the end. And in Romans 8 that we read earlier, it talks about futility. Futility which I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, if you read the Greek version of Ecclesiastes, it's going to give us that word. Futility. And in Romans chapter 8, futility comes as a result of sin. The world is the, in the state that it's in, and we're in the state that we're in, and, it, and there's futility in this world because of sin, and we need a solution. And now I'm getting ahead of myself, and the solution to the futility in this world ends up being God's special revelation. It ends up being the living word of God. But for now, I simply want you to see that this, this appraisal, vanity of vanities, meaninglessness of meaninglessness, is because of the sinful world we live in. Right? When you, when you read Genesis at the beginning and God creates everything and He says, and the Lord said, everything is vanity. Everything is futile. No. He says it's good. And then He says it's very good. And so reading between the lines if you will, or reading other texts to help us to understand, this is because of sin. Because we live in this sinful world, sin-cursed under God's judgment world, Solomon says everything is meaningless because sin has gotten its grubby fingerprints everywhere. And that's the appraisal. One more quick reference from Kidner because I think he puts it so simply and helpfully. The function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment is the only honest one. What it seems to be what seems to be going on here is he wants to, still, wants to lead us by the hand down the road so we'll say, you know what, he's right. The only honest evaluation about life is life is empty. Life is meaningless. Life is futile. So much so that the author at one point in time says, so you'd be better off if you'd never been born. Or if you'd like, you'd be better off dead. Sorry if you came here to be uplifted. (laughs) If you were looking for the hour of power, um, as in your power, um, sorry. He wants you and He wants me to look behind so many rocks and in so many dark places and in so many sunny places to see everything whether it's education, savings, family, influence, you eventually go, it's zero. My life is meaningless. So you're desperate and you say, help. Help. And, and, and again, we have so many discussions about the gospel. It's a lot like the gospel, right? So it is, if everything is dying, we face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. It is then that we can hear as the good news, which it is that everything matters. Because he eventually gets us to that place. That actually now everything matters. If you have God's unique revelation to understand things. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Let's move on now to number three. A sampling of his argument. A sampling of his argument. And that's in verses 3 and following. Verse 3 says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Those haunting questions. you know. How are you going to answer that? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Based upon the fact that in verse 2 he said, Everything is meaningless. What do you think he might be looking for in verse 3? What do you gain? What do you gain from the letters behind your name that you work so hard for? What, what, what do you gain from investing so much in that 401k? What do you gain from all the hours at work? What do you gain from all your child raising and focus? What, what do you gain if everything is vanity? And the implied answer, no doubt, from verse 3 or, or that verse 3 is calling for is what? I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Because in the end, here's where he's going to go. You go for the degree and the advanced degree and another advanced degree. And you seek the promotion and you work the long hours. And you dedicate yourself to this and to that and to this kind of philanthropic act. And you know what? In the end, how about this? You die. Life sucks and then you die. In our vernacular, apart from the key to unlocking the whole thing, that's where he wants you to go, which is rather unsettling. It's obviously making some people here, even this morning, so unsettled they can't stand it. And notice what he says under the sun. He's being very exhaustive. We live our life and have our being under the sun. He's including everything. Everything is vanity. And he's referencing everything that everything is. (sighs) Now what's intriguing is to do what some have kind of teased out a little bit. And I think they're on to something. Yeah, we need something that exists outside of under the sun. We need something heavenly. And he keeps bringing up this futility under the sun. And you know what? Yeah, we need help from the outside. We need help from heaven to go from absolute meaninglessness to absolute meaning and fulfillment. Now what he does is he starts unpacking through comparison. Look at verse 4 with me, if you would. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Again, one of those verses, if you take it out of context, it sounds kind of good and kind of nice. You know, like it belongs in a psalm or something. Uh, But in the flow of things, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever, (laughs) that's not really encouraging. (laughs) You know, we we might ride in our margin and time keeps rolling on. I mean, the creation keeps going and we're going to see it keeps going in our cycles, but the reality is people like you and people like me don't. We die. It's a downer. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go back to places where I used to live, I have a lot of different emotions as you do, but one of the emotions I have is is I, I feel almost a sense of betrayal if I'm honest and candid because I'm thinking to myself, you know, so things just kept moving on without me being there, you know? Maybe I'm the only weird one. It's like, this is, you know, nobody asked me about this. Is kind of how I'm thinking. I left. As if to, to consider it, when I left, it stopped. She's driving through Millard yesterday saying to my daughter, this is so much different than when I used to live here. And I'm sure she got quite tired of me naming all the places that didn't used to be there. And that used to be a nice grocery store. And now it's closed down. And, you know, it's just nobody, nobody sent me a memo. I didn't get invited to the meeting. Life keeps rolling on when you're dead. It's unsettling. But I'm suggesting to you that it's meant to be unsettling. He keeps on with his argumentation. In verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to to the place where it rises it does what it's supposed to do the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns and all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow there they flow again So it's on this unending cycle but it's not meant to be encouraging because the reality is it's on its on the, the, these things are on it's on their unending cycles and you're not your cycle ends it's troubling summing up this perpetual circling or cycling is unutterable weariness. Look at verse eight with me if you would. all things are full of weariness. all things are full of it it's overwhelmingly so uh, for us in, in our, our in our Finitude. A man cannot utter it. It seems to mean it's a hard thing to translate. It seems to mean it's, it's beyond description when you stop and consider it. The NIV says, more than one can say. I mean, when you make this observation and you see the weariness of life and you compare it and look around and you say, this, I, this is not even utterable to talk about. It's just so exhausting how this works. He goes on to now use the eyes. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. This is so overwhelming. It's overwhelming to, 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 to our voice. It's overwhelming to our sight, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's how wearisome it is. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And there is a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. And I don't think he's talking about there's, no, there's never been any such thing as medical advances because there had been at that time. And he's the wisest man alive. Or there's no such thing as technology and everything always stays the same. That's not in, in purview here. That's not the perspective. It has to do with this cycle of everything's going on around us and we just keep dying. And, oh, you can come up with a new philosophy to somehow beat the system, but the reality is it's been tried before. I can come up with a new philosophy on life. But the reality is somebody's already come up with that philosophy before because here's what he's driving at. There's nothing new in context. There's nothing new under the sun that solves the dilemma that we're in that causes you to eventually, if you're honest, to say, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, everything is filled with meaninglessness. Vanity of vanity. Everything under the sun is problematic. I think that's the idea here. No new philosophy is going to help us. It's already been thought up because you can't really think yourself out of this one. And it's just wearying to the bone. I'm not feeling too good right about now. Maybe it's good in God's providence we had a lot of uplifting good gospel realities and we're going to go back there, trust me. This is, this is so intense. Solomon, again, is going to say, you'd be better off dead. That's how empty life is. I watched a documentary not that long ago about people who jump off of the Golden Gate Bridge, commit suicide. Don't know why I was watching it. It's not an endorsement. Late night television on Netflix, I guess. And I've driven across that bridge before some of you have too, and you see the signs that are up, the, the you know, call signs. there's telephones there, I believe. It's fatal to do this. There is help, there is hope, that kind of kind of signage. In a very real sense. I think the author to Ecclesiastes before he gets to the solution which might be the telephone for help but to make his point if he were in charge of the signage for the city of San Francisco it would just say on the sign jump because you'd be better off dead (laughs) now I know that probably none of you drove here this morning looking for this But if you just read the book, it really is distressing. And you get some glimpses. He does some God talk. And and you get some tastes and some glimpses of what's going to come. And and then at the end, you're, you're ready. Yeah! But I submit to you what the text actually says, where he says everything under the sun. It's filled with weariness. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. And that keeps being repeated throughout the book. That's not a Christian worldview. That's not a believer's worldview. But what he's suggesting, I think, is that is where you eventually go, if you're honest in pursuing things, apart from supernatural divine revelation to interpret the world around you, which gives you the key to understanding and having meaning in everything. And so I say, let it get dark. I say, let it get dark so that we appreciate the gift when we actually get to the gift later on. Somebody was telling me recently just to be a little lighthearted about this, which isn't really lighthearted, so I should stick to my notes, but how they were finding uh, tennis shoes with feet in them washing up on shore. They couldn't figure out where are these feet coming from with tennis shoes. The conclusion was these are jumpers and the sharks don't like rubber soles. And you say, wow, how crazy it is for people to do such a thing. I'm suggesting to you, Solomon says, go for it. But then he doesn't. (laughs) Because he's going to give us the solution to say, no, Call for help. (laughs) Life has meaning. Life is wonderful. Life is glorious. Provided you see things through the right lens. Well, let's wrap things up in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. In other words, we're not very good at remembering the past. Okay, This isn't encouraging either. You work so hard. You give your life's work to something. There is no remembrance of former things. I can't find my significance in, in, in my work and my effort and what I'm going to contribute because people don't even remember. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. And really, I guess that's, that's the, the main thing. We don't learn from history very well. That's the first part. I misspoke. And people aren't really going to learn from our history either or our impact either. They're not really going to remember We don't remember the past very well. People aren't going to remember us very well either. It's a depressing note. Completely meaningless, completely meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So it is to the naked eye. But Romans chapter 8 ends up being a key for me in understanding, in New Testament terms, where he's going. He's going to get to the fear of the Lord, okay? And that's the solution. The fear of the Lord, the true knowledge of the true God helps you to see everything differently. And to bring in the New Testament a little bit, then we have no more futility in life because we not only have the true knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord, it ends up, the, the, the colors come to full coloration, if you will, in the living and abiding Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reverses the futility on the whole thing. And that's why I do love Romans 8.20 for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, there's hope. Don't jump. There's hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom in the glory of the children of God. We've been set free from this as the children of God redeemed in Christ. But you've got to let it get dark to see how great the light is. And I think that's what's happening in Ecclesiastes. You can pray for me because I'm going to try to figure out whether or not I just need to go for a gospel next week because it's Easter, or if I uh, can have Ecclesiastes be an Easter message. And <laughs> maybe Good Friday, Easter's a little, a little tougher. But uh, we might take a break next week, but uh, we'll see how that goes, but we will celebrate the resurrection next week the week, but quite honestly, we do all the time. Um, read the book, read the whole thing. Find your hope ultimately in God's final revelation that interprets all things, and God has spoken in many ways that help us to understand the truth, but he's spoken finally redemptively, ultimately, climactically, as Hebrews 1 says, in his Son, who makes sense of everything and makes life worth living. Father, thank you for our time together, and thank you that you use your word powerfully in our lives, and thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us and to guide us. We're grateful for your enablement in our lives so that we cannot absolutely cry for fatalism and death and the ending of it all. We're grateful that we can say, Precious Savior, be Thou my portion. All without Thee is vanity. All with Thee is true meaning and substance. May we go with that kind of hope as we go today. In Jesus' name, Amen.